1: been a lot of years since Tony and I worked together we did a revival one time and I don't think we do those anymore do we and I kind of miss it so if you if you're here from another church and you want a revival you can ask Tony and me and we'll come I've chosen the topic and subject today, and I'm taking my text from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Now ordinarily, if people know you're going to preach in Revelation, they get all excited. You know, you can say you're going to have a study in Revelation and people will come. You say you're going to have a prayer meeting, and nobody comes. (laughs) But I'm going to do what one of my black preacher friends says he does. He said when he takes a text, he does three things with it. He says he takes it, he leaves it, and he never comes back to it. And so I'm going to do that today. Let me explain before I begin. My title, The Menace of Mediocracy, the word menace means a threat. Mediocrity means, according to the dictionary, being mediocre. And so I looked up the word mediocre, and it said, not good, not bad, ordinary, average, not good enough, inferior. So there is a threat of becoming mediocre. The text is to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis, who have not soiled their clothes, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well of the seven churches addressed in the first three chapters of Revelation, I always thought Laodicea was in the worst state because the the Lord warned warned Laodicea that they were lukewarm and he was about to spew them out of his mouth and that was a serious warning. But Sardis was dead. And the dead are not even lukewarm. They're cold and stiff. And evidently, Sardis had received the gospel gladly at first. It is now some 60 years since the Lord had gone back to heaven. And now they have a name to be alive, but the Lord said they were dead, and it was not overt iniquity that was the problem, it was decent death, now how did Sardis ever come to such a state? For that matter, how do individual Christians lose their zeal? I know, I think, how it happens. And it's a danger is still with us. It threatens every church and every Christian. And that danger is that we will settle for mediocrity. The call of Christ is a call to excellence. And by that, I do not mean that our service must be as good as someone else's, but that our service and conduct have to be as good as we can make them. There must be a commitment to excellence. One of the things about our pastor is he is committed to excellence. And because of that, I am committed to him. There must be a commitment to growth in spirit and in number a commitment to sharpen our skills, to tune our gifts till all the body lives and moves and has its being in Christ. And the menace of mediocrity is very real. There's a temptation to settle for less than the best. And that robs churches and individuals of joy and power and strength and hope. And we lose our enthusiasm. We say we ain't never done it that way before. (laughs) And mediocrity robs us of life. And I have a suggestion or two about how the church of Sardis could come to settle for mediocrity. They could have had a pastor who began with enthusiasm, but when the work plateaued out, he got discouraged and began to borrow sermons, to study less, to let things drift. But most time pastors are zealous and they work hard at preparing. And I think the choir at Sardis did accept they did well, but they couldn't see the benefits of practice. I think the teachers had good material, but they never used the helps in the back of the quarterlies. I think the men and women's organization organized along their own lines and did what they wanted. And everyone was satisfied with their little church. I hate that title. There are small churches. But God forbid that there be little churches. There's a difference between little and small. And everyone was satisfied. But Jesus pronounced them dead. And I want to tell you that any living thing, and the church is a living thing, Any living thing that will not grow will die. And I want to share with you three things. By the way, I pastored one of those churches once. After they called me, I thought surely we could build it up. One of the leading members came to me and said, now pastor, we don't want no visitation programs, and we don't want no soul-winning classes, and we don't want no kids coming in on that bus to mess up our auditorium. <laughs> well, I was there five years, and I gave it my best, and I baptized two people in five years. Would it, would it surprise you to know that that church is dead? So I want to share with you three things that are necessary to combat mediocrity. The first thing is you must start with your mind. That's where the battle is because we become what we think. Jesus quoted Proverbs 23, 7. For the man thinks in his heart so is he. And our mind is a target of the enemy because if he can affect the way we think, he can keep our lives at the level of mediocrity. And he attempts to think the way we, to influence the way we think about ourselves. Satan says you're not able to do what you've been called to do And if you were able, you're not fit to do it. And I like what Mahalia Jackson used to say, God made me and he don't make no junk. (laughs) And then the enemy says, no one really cares if you excel. If you just are mediocre, it will satisfy people. But the scripture says whatever your hand finds to do do it with all your might. And whatsoever things are true whatsoever things are honest whatsoever things are just whatsoever things are lovely whatsoever things are of good report if there be any virtue think on these things. And scripture makes it clear the primary battleground is our mind. But if Satan's strategy succeeds, he will keep us mediocre. In 2 Corinthians ten three through 5 Paul has a word. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's Paul's battle cry. And in ancient days, cities were ringed with massive walls. Satan held the fort. We think that the promise Jesus gave in Matthew 16 about the church, the gates of hell not prevailing against it, we think that we're the fort and Satan's attacking. That's not what Jesus meant. Satan holds a fort. We are the attackers. And if we attack the citadel, the gates will fall. They cannot prevail against the church. And we must take the citadel. The wall must be scaled and the towers taken and the soldiers captured and killed. I know we spent twenty-one centuries thinking we were on the defense. But we were dead wrong. We are to be on the offense. This is my father's world. And we must take it for him. And we're not cringing behind his walls. And by the way, the gates, the city gates, was where the planners met. And so Jesus was saying, whatever Satan is planning, it makes no difference his plans will be destroyed when the church attacks. And Make no mistake, our enemies plan their strategy. And every demon from hell wants to see you and I be mediocre in our lives. Martin Luther knew Satan well. And in a great hymn of the church, he penned these lines. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness Grim, we trembled not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. A simple word will fail him. And Satan is a master, strategist, his soldiers, all seasoned veterans, but we have a weapon. We have a weapon. We have God's word and his Holy Spirit. And when the wall is breached, And the towers tumble, the enemy flees. And God's real goal to take every thought captive to Christ. And he begins to reprogram our thinking, our lust, our jealousy, critical attitudes. All those negative strongholds must be taken. And there is hope to rise beyond the level of mediocrity. Now, how can someone who has lived in mediocrity for years, how can he suddenly become a victor? Well, you start the assault with the promises of victory that God gives. For example, thanks be to God who gives us the what? The victory. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't have to be a victim. We can be a victor in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Or those who wait on the Lord shall gain new strength. Get you a Bible and read it thoughtfully and become a victor instead of a victim and then set your eyes on God's kingdom. This world will hold your gaze on it. And even if you get all it has to offer, it will still be less than the best. See, power is all the world offers. And we've seen a demonstration of that, haven't we? This last month. And the world offers us financial power, a temptation that conceals a demon called greed. Nothing can destroy a person like the desire to possess. Sexual power hides a demon of lust. True sexuality leads to humanness, but misuse leads to depersonalization. Power leads to pride. True power aims at setting people free. But power seeks to dominate. Before we can rise above mediocrity, we have to deal with our selfishness. We must come to a place of decision about who we're going to serve. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. He will serve mammon, Or God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, quite simply, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. And those who choose to live in His kingdom choose to live under His rule. God's kingdom is where God rules as supreme authority. That's good news. But the bad news is By nature, we don't want anybody to rule over us. More bad news. Most people want to serve mammon. But there's more good news. You don't have to live like that. God has given us a way of escape from this world while we live in it. And it's by a new birth. It's not easy to accept God's authority in everything. There's a man in the Bible, you remember him perhaps, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he was a success. His middle name was pride. He built a city that was one of the wonders of the ancient world and he led his country to be the fastest growing most famous civilization the world ever knew. He was good, and he knew it. And one day, he was strutting his stuff. And God struck his proud mind. And Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal. He ate grass like an ox. His nails grew like bird claws, and his hair like eagle feathers. And he was like that for seven years. But eventually, his reason returned. He surrendered his pride, and he looked up and exalted God. Only then could he begin to fulfill his God-appointed role on earth. And you see, what you do when you're tempted to make a name for yourself you remember the small things. Before you grab for glory and great things, ask yourself how you do with small things. Jesus said if you can be trusted with a little thing, you can be trusted with a big thing. And in times of testing, it is in the hidden acts of our lives that we hammer out our endurance, our love, our strength. God has great lessons to teach us when we go through painful times. And tribulation separates the men from the boys and the girls from the women, I suppose. And when the kingdom of God presses into a life, you must accept it or reject it. And many cannot face the problems and release their pride, so they run. And they always have to settle for a mediocre lifestyle. A pastor friend of mine decided to leave the ministry I went to him and talked with him about it, not to change his mind, but to make him think about it. And I told him he was determined to leave the ministry, and I said to him, I have a book title called Trumpets in the Morning. It's about a pastor who left the ministry, and he was asked by his friend, What do you miss about the ministry? And he said, I miss the trumpets in the morning. Finally, the kingdom of God requires commitment, there's a commitment of personal possessions. Strange how things get a hold of our hearts and trap us in the life of mediocrity. 17 of Jesus' 24 parables are against that very thing. And what we have or do not have does not need to determine our spiritual life. I'm not suggesting you take a vow of poverty. I know better than that. I'm not suggesting you give up nice things. I am saying, give up control of them. Hold the things of this world and use them well, but hold them lightly. Don't wrap your life around them. And the people who live abundantly have given everything to God. And they live and trust Him to give back all they need. Many people know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. People who live abundantly have discounted things with a price tag, and they've adopted values that are priceless. And materialism is a form of the menace of mediocrity. Then too, there must be commitment in personal relationships. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister He cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus was not saying we could treat our family harshly or be ugly, but he was emphasizing the very real possibility that there may be some competition from our family or by our family. And if it comes to Christ or our family, Guess who takes precedence? There is no room for competition in our commitment to Christ. I'm not getting any amens, Tony. It's a matter of priorities, deciding who comes first. Then, Commitment to excellence involves your personal goals and desires. And Jesus said, he spoke to this when he said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in that time, if you saw a man carrying his cross, you knew he was going to die. And Jesus used that word picture to des- describe dying to our own desires and following him fully. So, denying yourself is not to lose your own uniqueness or to become of no value. Because the people who have been of most value to this earth have been those who model self-denying. Robert E. Lee was offered the command of the Union forces before the Civil War. Had he accepted, his life would have been different. But after the war ended, a woman brought her infant son to General Lee for him to bless it. He took the baby in his arms and he looked at the mother and said, teach him he must deny himself. And self-denial is simply putting the kingdom of God above personal gain or fame or fortune or comfort and living abundantly in Christ. Legend has it that there was a man lost in the desert. Dying for lack of water, he came across a deserted homestead, just a shack, windowless, roofless, He glanced around and he spied an old rusty pump and he stumbled to it and began to pump and it squeaked and squeaked but nothing came out and he spied an old jug by the pump and he wiped the dust from the jug and there was a message on it that said you have to prime the pump with the jug. Be sure to leave the jug full for the next man. Now he was faced with a decision. Would the pump work? He had a gallon of water. He could drink it. Reluctantly, he popped the cork, primed the pump, and began to pump, squeak, squeak, then a dribble, then a stream, then a gushing flow. He filled the jug, drank from it several times. When he left, he added a note. He wrote, it really does work. You have to give it all away before you get anything back. And people who take that risk can never live mediocre lives. So... How do you want to live? Abundantly? Or just so-so? Are you willing to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? There is a life that is deeper and higher and broader and stronger than this world knows anything about. And beyond that, There is eternal life. Now eternal is not just length. Eternal is a quality of life. It is the very life of Christ in you. And life does not begin at death. Eternal life does not begin at death. It begins the moment you trust Christ. It is his life in you living in and through you don't settle for a mediocre life give yourself into his hands receive his abundant life and if you live for him now you will live with him forever
0: as a church it's our honor to play a small part in all that god is doing in and through your life and we would love to continue with you on that journey To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tbccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.